Well, if you will take your copy of God's Word and turn to the Gospel of Luke. We're continuing, continuing right on through Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 6 is our passage today. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 12 through 19. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 19. Again, it is a delight and joy to see you, to, to even be with you through live stream. Again, thankful for the, um, I guess we can call it a gift on this occasion, the gift of technology. We're thankful that we can have that and use that as an opportunity uh, to still connect with folks. And uh, indeed, it is good that we can be together, even in this way today. Uh, Luke chapter 6. Uh, We're going to continue on, verse 12, down to verse 19. I'm going to read beginning in verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. We read, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them the twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom whom he named Peter, Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place, with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and to the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful, Lord, that we can be instructed by it. Lord, the the fact that we have been given a word that has been preserved all these years, that you have spoken and that you give your word for the good of your people, for bringing us hope through the gospel and for building us up in the faith. Father, we thank you for its rebuke, for its correction, for the fact that it trains us in righteousness, that we might please you in every way. So, Father, we pray for these things now to happen by the aid of your Spirit, that you would allow your word to take root in our hearts and lives and be transformed by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, amen. Well, here we are in Luke chapter 6, and just kind of to do a little bit of recap, it's been maybe a while since we've started through Luke. It's always good to maybe stop occasionally and go back and kind of see where we've come from. And so just a little bit of review this morning, what we've seen so far in the Gospel of Luke. We know from the first two chapters of Luke that we uh, are introduced to Jesus and his birth narrative. And we see there really in those two chapters how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures and promises we have there. Uh, in in the Old Testament and and how Jesus has now arrived on the scene and he has come to fulfill everything spoken by the prophets. Find that in the first two chapters of Luke. In chapter 3, we're introduced to John the Baptist. Just in case you wanted to hear it louder, right? John the Baptist, right? So that was intentional. Uh, John the Baptist arrives on the scene as prophesied to ready the people for the coming of the Messiah. So yes, Jesus has come, and now John comes, just as the prophet said that there would be a a forerunner. And so we know that 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 is the case in John's ministry. And then we come to the fourth, fifth, and sixth chapters of Luke, 
And really, when you get to chapter 4, the camera begins to focus more clearly upon the ministry and life of Jesus. As we begin to zero in a little more so on the, the, the work of Christ, who he is, what he's like, what he came to do. We know that from chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. In the very next chapter, in chapter 5, verse 32, we, we read that he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So we know that even from the words of Jesus on Mount, that the fact that he came, he came for a mission, he came for a purpose, and that it was to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And certainly that good news is centered upon who he is and what he came to, to fulfill and accomplish. And that's what, that's what we've seen even as we enter into chapter 6. Jesus clarifying further who he is. He's teaching. He's healing. He's casting out demons. His ministry is established. But so is the opposition. As Jesus comes and he begins his ministry, we see that it's not always well received. In fact, just last week we've seen, the last few weeks we've seen how the Pharisees begin to increase their opposition against him. That's where we are here as we come to chapter 6 and verse 12 today. Jesus' ministry has begun. The opposition has become stronger. And we begin to get a, get, get a bit of a glimpse as to who Jesus is and what he's come to, to accomplish, especially as he now begins to transition. And you're going to begin to see this as we work our way through the next few chapters. You're going to see more and more of his teaching, what Jesus had to say and what he came to teach. Yes, he came to heal. Yes, he came to cast out demons, but he came to teach. He came to proclaim the gospel and its impact upon our lives. As we continue watching Jesus serve and watching Jesus teach, and as his teaching ministry becomes more and more prominent, we're going to be, be able to see several characteristics that the, about the Christian life that he calls us to. But even before that, before we begin to jump into the, the depth of his teaching ministry, here in these verses today, in verses 12 through 19, we get a bit of a snapshot. It's somewhat of a transition point here before we really dive into his teaching ministry. And you get a bit of a snapshot about the character of his ministry, the nature of his ministry. He's already been serving. He's already been ministering. But here's a, a bit of a transition. And as his ministry team is formed, as the opposition is stirring, and things are, are continuing on, things are about to get ramped up a bit, you see somewhat of a snapshot of just kind of an overall perspective of what Jesus' ministry was like. And so today I want us to look at that. I want us to pause for a moment just to consider his ministry, kind of a snapshot view of the character, the nature of his ministry, particularly several characteristics about this ministry that not only gives us confidence for, for what lies ahead, but it also should help shape our own perspective of what Christ has called us to be, the ministry he's called us to engage in as well. So we're going to consider these characteristics of his ministry today as we think through what Jesus came to accomplish and do. So we want to begin, first of all, with the first characteristic, and we see that very clearly in the first verse there in verse 12. We see that Jesus' ministry is a prayer-driven ministry. It's driven by prayer. We know that Jesus faced quite a hostile opposition. 
the, the reality of, of what the Pharisees were trying to do, the scribes and other religious leaders of the day, and certainly Rome, were not favorable towards Christ. They didn't understand. They, they didn't get. They were blinded still to the truth of who he was. And yet he continues on, despite the opposition, despite the, the, the heartaches, the, the, the difficulties the Pharisees brought about in his ministry, he continues on for the purpose for which he was sent. And the very next thing that we see as he prays, he, he prays before he calls out the 12 apostles. The very next thing he was going to do was call these 12 apostles. But before he does that, notice what he does in verse 12. He, he spends an entire night praying. An entire night he prays. Now you'd think he's the son of God. God sent his son into the world. You would think that Jesus already had that list, right? You'd think that he already had that. But no, he spends time praying, seeking his father in heaven as he seeks to discern wisdom from above in the selection of who would form this early ministry team. And this, these 12 apostles would have a significant impact on what was about to happen. This is not the only time we see Jesus praying, is it? In fact, you can read throughout the gospel narratives and you will find that it was a common practice in his life, in his ministry, for him to pray. It was a regular impulse that he had, and it seems like Luke here intentionally highlights that for our consideration. He doesn't just dive into to naming the 12 apostles. He intentionally certainly inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it seems that he intentionally exposes us to the ministry of Jesus here in the selection of the apostles, but before that, how he spends time praying. The practice of prayer was clearly a priority of Jesus regarding everything that he came to do. I think that the fact that we see Jesus need to pray here is a huge statement of its own. The practice of prayer, a priority in Jesus' life. And you think about that, friends. It's a humbling thing, isn't it? We think that, that Jesus carved out time and extended periods of time to pray. How he seeks his Father in this way, the, the priority. You know, when I read these things, it's, it's humbling to me. It's humbling and it's convicting because I begin to think about my own prayer life a bit. And I begin to wonder if, if I pray like that. Certainly, I know one of the things during this, this season away that we've had during this weird time in our, in our lives these past few months, one of the things that I think the Lord has really shown me is just how little I do pray, how negligent I am in seeking the Father. Friends, if Jesus spent an entire night praying before he chose the twelve then how much more ought we to pray? See, the absence of prayer from our lives is nothing more than the manifestation of pride. We never were created to be self-dependent. I know that everything out there in the world tells you differently. But we were not created to be independent. We were not created to, to rule our own lives, to, to do our own thing. To make a name for ourselves, we were created as image bearers, reflecting the image of our creator and living in fellowship with the creator in dependence upon him. And that's exactly what prayer is. 
Friends, we need to understand that prayer is not bringing our wish list to God. Prayer is an expression of our trust, of our faith, and our dependence upon him for everything we need. So that's why we pray. We pray we're not informing God of things that he's not aware of. We pray because we're expressing our need for him. Our, our desire for him, our understanding that he is our source of hope and strength and confidence and wisdom, that we have none of that on our own. We need him. Jesus prays here as he models this, this, this dependence upon his father. There's one of the things that I, I just take away from this already when I think about this text is that when I read this passage, there's a lot of other things we're going to see, but one of the things I just want to walk away from today is, is my need to seek the Heavenly Father more often than I do. That's my prayer and my hope, even as we consider that this morning together, that we would see our need to pray more. We don't have to say that to each other. We know that that's the case, right? But here we're just getting encouraged towards that. If anything that we would leave here today being a much more dependent people upon our great God and Savior. Prayer is an expression of that dependence. A lack of prayer is, in essence, a lack of faith. It's a lack of trust. It's a lack of confidence in the only one who can provide the source of true strength and hope. Friends, if we're going to honor the Lord, if we're going to be a people that's effective in our following him, in the callings that we have and the responsibilities he's given us, then we must prioritize the discipline of prayer. Brothers and sisters, I just ask you, those of you who are here, those of you who are at home, when you think about your own prayer life, how is your private prayer life going? Friends, if anything that we've had more time to do these past few months, it's spend time in prayer. How's that going? And I'm not here to just make you feel guilty because, listen, friends, I, if, if anyone needs to hear that, it's me. Do you make prayer one of your top priorities of every single day? I, I love the, the story of George Mueller. George Mueller was a pastor in Bristol, England back in the 1800s. Literally, pretty much his life spanned the course of the entire 1800s. Born in the early 1800s, I think died in 1890-something. So literally, his life spanned that entire time. He's a pastor for 60 years in the same church. He was a founder of over five orphanages in England, serving about 10,000 some orphans during this time. And he was a man known, not necessarily for his preaching or other things. He was, he was known for his praying, how dependent upon the Lord he truly was, never asking for a penny from anyone for the sustainment of the orphanages or anything like that. He was a man known for his prayer. He prayed. And one of the things that we read in his biography, uh, just highlighting his persistent prayer life, he said this, he said, the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first greatest primary business of my day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. And friends, that is impossible if you're not communing with him. If you're not praying, if you're not spending time with him, casting upon, uh, casting your cares upon him, tr seeking him in independence and faith. Friends, is that the great and primary business and priority of your day? To have your soul happy in the Lord? That you would run quickly to your heavenly Father? Big decisions or small? That you would run and trust him through prayer.
Friends, both private and corporate prayer is a primary discipline for all believers. We need to acknowledge the, the excuses and hindrances we put in the way. I mean, we all like to say that, don't we? We're, we're just so busy. Let's tell that to Jesus. Tell that to Jesus. I mean, as if he didn't have much going on. Just kind of chilling out there in Galilee, resting a bit. No, I mean, he was a busy man. He had a lot of work to accomplish in a short amount of time, and yet he carved out entire nights to pray. See that it's a prayer-driven ministry. Second observation we see about the nature of his ministry, it's a clarifying ministry. Next thing that we see in this passage, after Jesus' all-night prayer meeting, he calls his disciples together and he chooses 12 of them that he would call apostles. Now their role as an apostle would mean that they had a specific calling. The, the word apostle simply means to be sent out, to be one commissioned to represent the, the sender, if you will. And so these 12 men would be apostles, capital A apostles in a sense, because I don't think that their ministry could be replicated. They had a very unique one-time kind of calling in the role and ministry in which they were called to. And so he calls them out to be those who would be sent out for the sake of the ministry and sake of the mission. They were apostles. They were going to represent this great work of redemption that Jesus came to accomplish, and then they would seek to share. We know that the word apostle was used in a very general and strict sense, in two kind of different ways throughout the, the New Testament. And here it's in that stricter sense, has to do, has, having to do with these 12 men who would be sent out to lay the foundation, really, of God's global purpose in the world. The calling of these 12 disciples, these 12 apostles, really clarified a new era of redemptive history. Looking back just a few weeks ago of, of the new wine and the new wineskins and, and that example, and now the arrival of, of Jesus as he announces this new era in redemptive history. We know that, that the scripture points to Jesus as, in a sense, we could, we could say that Jesus is the, the true Israel. He is the one that, that obeyed and, and fulfilled everything that God called him to, whereas the old covenant people did not. He is the one who came to bring in this, this new covenant, we call it. And now he chooses 12 apostles. And that number is important. He didn't choose 13, he didn't choose 11, he didn't choose 40, he chose 12. The calling of these 12 apostles really mirrors the formation of the 12 tribes of Israel, setting up the stage for the ministry of the new covenant and the establishment of the church. So what you're going to begin to see here and through, through the life and ministry of Jesus is this, this, this new era, this new era of redemptive history where the church becomes very focal point of, of, of Christ building his people. And some would like to say, well, you're just saying that, that the church replaces Israel. That's not at all what we're saying. The church doesn't replace Israel. Jesus is reconstituting Israel, and in that manner, he's including now the Gentiles, and he's, he's further clarifying what the people of God will be. It's no longer Israel. It's Israel and the Gentiles. It's Jew and Gentile. It's now going to reach to the ends of the earth. So this new Israel of sorts will now reach far beyond the borders of Israel, thus fulfilling God's promise all the way back to Abraham that he would be the father of a multitude of nations. 
And so the calling of these 12 apostles, reflecting back upon the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 patriarchs and so forth, you, you see how this, this number is really beginning to, to set a, a clarity on, on what it is that Jesus came to do. You get to Revelation chapter 21, verse 14, we see this connection that even in the new Jerusalem, as the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, it had 12 foundations. The 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were each of those foundations. All this to say, it's not an accident that Jesus chose 12. He's making a statement here about the nature of his ministry. A new era has dawned. The new covenant coming to bear. Redemption is going to the ends of the earth. You see that there, a clarified ministry. But also you see it's a shared ministry, number three. A shared ministry. Choosing the 12 apostles, Jesus is about to delegate a lot of responsibility to them. In fact, the mission was only the beginning. What they were about to do was only the beginning. He would send these men out to carry on that mission, and that mission, in essence, continues today. It's always intriguing to me that, that Jesus would call out others and equip them to share in the ministry he came to accomplish. He does that here as he chooses the 12. We, we see these men, there's two sets of brothers in this list, Peter and Andrew, James and John. You have Philip and Bartholomew, or maybe some would later say Nathaniel, who would go on to say, can anything good come from Nazareth? Then you have Matthew or Levi, the tax collector. You have Thomas, who was known for his doubting. James, there's another Simon. And then lastly, we're told about Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. It's an interesting statement, isn't it, as Luke makes that little side comment there? See that in verse 16? And Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. It just shows us that Luke, as he writes his gospel, he's looking back. Sometime now in the future, he's now looking back upon what had happened as he records the details of this, this gospel. He's not just writing it as, as things go on. He's looking back and he's recording this account for us. He understands that it's important to highlight here that even as Jesus chose these 12 men, one of them would become a traitor. One would not persevere to the end. One would fall away. Jesus spent three intense years with these men. And by the end of those years, these men would be sent out to change the world. I love what J.C. Ryle says about these, these guys. He said, a few lowly Galileans shook the world exactly what we see you, you just notice one thing about them not you look at this list of these these apostles one major thing that you see here is that none of them were major influencers none of them had important roles or responsibilities fishermen tax collector now fishermen that's a pretty important job i think i mean it feeds us right i'm just talking about the importance of 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 their status in society. These were common, normal people doing normal jobs like the vast majority. And yet it's these men that Jesus chose and called out. One was a zealot known for his politics and his influence there and, and his, his work there. But again, these were mostly sim simple, common men. And they were used in a way that would, in fact, forever change history. We know that the scripture talks about how they did, in fact, turn the world upside down. And that's exactly what we will continue to see. The apostles would serve a unique role in the advance of the kingdom of God and the preaching of the gospel. They would lay the foundation for what was to come. 
And while their unique role would not be repeated in the way that they served, in a sense, we all have picked up where they left off. They turned the world upside down, and we are all beneficiaries of the foundation that they lay. Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. Fellow citizens. You're no longer Jews and Gentiles. You're fellow citizens. This, this, new, this new people, in a sense. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. No, we may not be capital A apostles today, but we are all given tasks We are all given responsibilities for the sake of God's work in his world, for the sake of the kingdom. When we come to faith in Christ, we are all given a new priority, and we are all called to be co-workers in this ministry together. The work of gospel ministry is something that will continue on until Jesus comes again. Continues on today. And we've been called to be part of it. He continues to build his church, and we are built on that foundation that the apostles laid. We all contribute to this greater structure, this building that God is building. We're all a part of it, even though they may have been part of that foundation. Again, I think it's important for us to see the reference to Judas who became a traitor. It's a good warning and reminder to us, isn't it? Kind of a gut check. That even in these 12 apostles, you had one that would ultimately deny him. As we look at the list of the 12, they all were flawed men. They all had their blemishes. They all had their, their issues. But they all would be used for the sake of the kingdom, except Judas. He, he didn't last. He, he denied Christ. Turned his back against him. Turned him in. Walked with Jesus for three years, and in the, in the end, he betrayed him. Just a, just a reminder to us. Just a reminder to make your calling and election sure. That we would be reminded of what we're committed to. The shared ministry that we have together. You know, you think about the lives of the apostles, and most of them, tradition tells us, virtually all of them, if not most of them, if not all of them, ended up dying as martyrs for their commitment. Now, here they are, common, ordinary Men living common, ordinary lives. Jesus comes along and calls them, sends them out on a mission. They spread the good news of the gospel as far as they could take it. It would be picked up by others and continued on. Even found its, even found its way to a parking lot in southern Maryland. And yet they would, at the risk of their own lives, be committed to this cause. And that too is humbling, isn't it? I think that God calls us to be part of this great work that he is building, that he is doing in this world as he's calling sinners to himself, as he's calling people to repentance and faith, as he's bringing about this great harvest in the world today. He continues to send us out. He continues to make known the good news of Jesus Christ to a world who desperately needs to hear it. 
while we may not be capital A apostles, we do have a responsibility and an obligation, a joyful obligation, to make Christ known, to build up others in the truth of who Christ is, and to be sure that we're quick to run the course and to run it well, that we would persevere to the very end, making Jesus known, even at the risk of our own lives. That would be our calling as well. As we share in this ministry together, it's not just the apostles' jobs to get it done. We all have the joyful privilege of joining together for this cause in this world. I couldn't think of a better group of people than you to get to do it with. Number four, fourth and final characteristic we see here, and we're going to look at verses 17 through 19 today, but we'll pick back up with these verses again next week as it introduces us to the next section. But we see here just another little characteristic. It's We could call it a mercy-filled ministry. We've seen how it's a, a shared ministry, a, a prayer-driven ministry, a clarifying ministry, but now it's a mercy-filled ministry as well. We, we see that in the, the way that Jesus serves. In verses 17 through 19, we see a, a summary statement of sorts there. Uh, it says, He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came from him, and he healed them all. Notice the groups of people that were there. You had the 12 apostles. You had a larger group of disciples. And then you had a great multitude of people from Jerusalem, Judea, and the seacoast north. It's interesting that you see this because I think it's a statement of, of what Jesus came to do. The, the reach of his ministry, it begins to show how it's going out and uh, reminds us of Acts 1-8, doesn't it? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And you see just a little snapshot here of that seed, how that's going to go, for, go, go forth. We're told that this crowd came to hear Jesus, so he's teaching, and to be healed by him. They came to hear him and to be healed by him. Verse 18, they came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. And notice what the text says. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowds sought to touch him, for power came from him, and he healed them all. He healed them all. He didn't just pick out 10 or 12 that day. Imagine the great multitude that must have been around him, and, and he gave attention and care to every single one of them that were burdened. The compassion, the mercy, the kindness of Jesus as he pours out this compassion to those who had gathered to hear him and to be healed by him, he does that. We know this crowd would have involved both Jews and Gentiles, and so again you see the new focus of his ministry would reach well beyond Israel, would include Israel, but go beyond it. And the apostles would take it even further. It shows here, again, just the, the nature of God's own heart and of how, how globally minded he is. The scope of this work would reach far and wide, reaching all throughout the world and continues on to this day. Friends, there is no limit. There's no limit to how far Christ's mercy will reach, how far it will go. 
It's not reserved for just a few here and a few there. He, he gives his mercy to people from all tongues, tribes, nations, and languages. Should inform how we do ministry as well. But again, it says that those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and those who were sick sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Again, his compassion leads him to minister to this great crowd. Those who were troubled, they were cured. Those who were sick, they were healed. Now, some would take that and build entire ministries upon it. Got healing ministries and healing services, and, and they're just trying to be like Jesus here, and that's not at all what this passage is trying to teach us. It's, it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive of what he's doing and what he's actually saying. Yes, these were real live miracles. Yes, Jesus does miracles today. I believe that. But what he is doing here as he extends his compassion and as he brings this healing, as he, as he cleanses people from unclean spirits, he is demonstrating yet again that he is one with authority. That he has authority over the physical realm and the spiritual realm. That he has authority to do what he came to do. And he ultimately came, we're told in chapter 4 and again in chapter 5, he ultimately came to preach the good news of the kingdom. That's what he came to do. These healings, these miracles, only pointed to the authority that he had to do so. Friends, while he performed many acts of compassion such as these, they were only a prelude to the greatest act of compassion that he would accomplish and perform which is when he gave his very life as a sacrifice and atonement for sin upon the cross. We know that Jesus ultimately humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, that that was his greatest act of compassion as he bore the sin and penalty for our sins, as he bore it upon the tree, as he hung in our place as a sacrifice to take the burden of our sin and guilt and shame upon himself so that our sins could be forgiven, that we would be welcomed and right with the holy God forever. That is the greatest work of compassion, and these miracles were only a prelude to this great work of redemption that he would come to accomplish. And his acts of mercy here only demonstrate his authority to do that, which was far greater. And that was to take guilty sinners and make them right with the holy God. Friend, if you're here today, if you're watching the live stream, you don't know what it means to walk with Jesus Christ, to understand that he is the one who was given for you and to bear the blame and burden of your sin, that he took upon himself that guilt, that he would, would come perfect as he was and yet die a death for sinners. That through his death, he gives full pardon of sin, full cleansing, full redemption. And friend, if you're looking for hope in this world, that is your hope to look to Christ who came to accomplish this great hope that we can have in him, to know that our sins are forgiven, to know that we have a right standing with God in heaven forever. Jesus came to secure that for you. If you would look to him and trust in him by faith, he will give that to you. He'll give that to you. Because this is the good news that he came to announce, and this is the good news that he came to accomplish. And this was the ministry that he and his band of disciples and these 12 apostles would carry forth to the ends of the earth. Still goes on today, this ministry, and will continue till Christ returns again. Friends, this is good news. 
This is the ministry that Jesus came to accomplish. And we're called to share in this same ministry of mercy to the world because this world needs mercy. You know, we are all hopeful and looking forward to the day when our news feeds and our notifications start to, to buzz that alerts us with breaking news that maybe they found a vaccine for this COVID-19 thing. That's going to be a great day. It's going to be an exciting day. It's going to be an encouraging day. It's going to be quite a moment. It's going to bring quite a relief to so many. And yet, we know that there is greater news than that in the world. There's greater news than that. The greatest news in the world is that Jesus Christ came to give himself for sinners and that our hope can be full and firm in him. We rejoice in that good news today. We thank the Lord that he came to give us the greatest news in the world. The world will rejoice because the world has good news because Jesus came to deliver us from the worst thing of all. And we thank the Lord Jesus that he came to bear the curse that we all have. And he gave his life for our sin that we could know him and live with him forever. Friends, that is news worth celebrating. That is news worth spreading. That is news worth getting around. And that is news worth building your lives upon today, that we would be firm in our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we would celebrate this great work of grace and redemption that he has brought, not because we deserved it, but because he loved the world and gave himself for us so that we could know him and live with him forever. Friends, that is the great work of redemption, and that is worth living for, and that is worth dying for. May we do it to his glory, we pray. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this great work that you have done through Jesus Christ. We thank you for the great hope that we have in the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that you have given what we could have never earned, that you, in your grace, gave us salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you, Father, this day that we have great hope. We thank you for this ministry that he came to accomplish. We thank you that we can be reminded today of what you've given us and how you've called us to join together to continue this great work, to, to share this great hope with the world that so desperately needs it. Father, would you give us grace to do so? Would you give us power by your spirit? Would you help us to walk forward in faith and hope and righteousness that your name would be praised forevermore? We thank you, Father, for this day. In Jesus' name.